What do you want to talk about? So I'll repeat the question <coughs> for the recording. Is abuse considered a biblical, can it be considered a biblical grounds for divorce? So let me give you a little bit of history. I'll give you history two different ways. We're starting off big here, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so a guy named Wayne Grudem, if you're familiar with him, Wayne Grudem delivered a paper at the Evangelical Theological Society a few years ago arguing that there is a third ground for divorce because in the evangelical church, um, there's different views on divorce. We actually have three different views of divorce among our pastoral staff at First Baptist. Heath has one view, and then I have another view, and then another one of our, our education pastor, he has a different view. And then all the rest of the pastors fall in those views somewhere. Um, <clears throat> so Wayne Grudem, my view is that there's two grounds for divorce. 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment, Matthew 19, and I'm simplifying this, but Matthew 19, unrepentant sexual sin. And that's kind of, people laugh at me when I say this, but I, I say it's the Reformed view. Um, so people don't like that when I say that, but that's, that's <laughs> what I was taught to call it. Um, so I've read Grudem's paper, and I can't get there. I just can't get there exegetically. I, I struggle with the exegesis of 1 Corinthians 7. Now, practically speaking, what happens, like this case I've been telling you about, it violates my two reasons for divorce, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. He abandoned her, and he's committed sexual sin. And most of the cases that I have dealt with fall into one of the other two categories anyway, that there's been abandonment or there has been sexual sin. So if it's not a ground for divorce, the next logical question is, well, then what do you do? And so separation for the sake of safety. I mean, one of our very first defaults is we've got to separate these two because we've got to keep this wife safe. So separation. Most of the cases that I've seen, some other, somewhere along the line in this story, one of those other passages of Scripture has been violated, and it's become a non-issue whether domestic abuse by itself has to be the grounds for divorce. I think the evangelical church is still thinking through that issue. So ask the seminary professors here. Uh, they're probably, either they've already developed a conviction or they're wrestling through it still. Yes, so let me repeat the question again. What is Julie's husband thinking why doesn't he just give up all the expenses of lawyers? Um, why does he keep prolonging this? Number one, he wants control. I, I don't want to give up control. I want to make this, I mean, he, he's like the Taliban. I, I, I want to make this woman's life miserable. And if she won't fall under my leadership, I am going to make her life absolutely miserable. So that's what he's thinking. He just, he's dominated by, I am going to get what I want. And even if it means I have to break the law, I'm going to get what I want. So the question again is, so the hope of heaven, while that's positive, so I'm reading into your question a little bit. So the hope of heaven, while that's positive, 
and yearning for heaven, would that then, could that then lead to a person like Julie to thoughts of suicide that I just want to get this over with because I have heaven in front of me? Am I interpreting your question properly? And uh, I can see the logic there, but for Julie, it's been, I can't think things like that. I have to take care of my girls. And the Lord, that's selfish, the Lord would want me to love my girls and train them so that they don't make the same mistakes that I've made. So that's what helps her battle any type of suicidal thoughts. Could it happen? Absolutely, that could happen. The suicide thought, I can't, I mean, yeah, yeah, and I understand why people commit suicide. Life can be unbearable at times. It's just, People lose hope and they want relief. Uh, John Piper argues that suicide happens because people want joy. And suicide is somebody just saying, I can't bear the pain anymore and I want some happiness. And suicide sounds like the way to happiness. So I can't bear this pain anymore. Yeah. So let me repeat the question. So children say a lot of things is what you, the summary of what you were saying. Children say a lot and I could... I did that <laughs> so when I was in third grade. I, uh, I was in Miss Murray's class in Westminster, Maryland, and my church, my dad was going through a bad church, my dad was a pastor, and he was going through a bad church conflict, and I went to my public school and reported it publicly. And, <laughs> and, my, and my teacher, Miss Murray, called my parents and said, you better be careful what you're saying, because I was giving names. I was naming names. and and. Uh, the teacher warned my parents, you better be careful what you're saying around the dinner table. So just illustrating what you're saying. So do we train our counselors to be tuned in to what children are saying? Absolutely. So uh, one of the things that we've done now, I, I'll resist the urge to go into the whole, explaining the whole thing, but we have this diagram we call the pyramid of care. And we have four levels of care in our church. Levels three and four are the more serious issues that require people to be under the care of a certified biblical counselor or a pastor who's been through training. Levels one and two are Sunday school teachers, life group leaders, etc. And we've now, now that we have levels three and four under control and we have a good core group of certified counselors, we've developed a new course for levels one and two called the Genuine Care Course where we train all Sunday school teachers and life group leaders in that type of thing. What to be tuned into in Sunday school. What do you do if somebody in your class uh, brings up that their marriage is hurting? What are triage type of things that a Sunday school teacher can do? So we're trying to help our Sunday school teachers to be tuned into those kind of things. When do you call DCF? Um, when do you tell the pastor over your area of ministry? that you suspect something's going on. So, so let's see if I can summarize your question. In light of 1 Peter 3, and uh, the implications in 1 Peter 3, I mean, the whole, the whole book of 1 Peter is about suffering. So the implication is chapter 2, if you have an unjust master that you're living under, how do you respond? 1 Peter 3, ungodly husband, how do you respond? And some 
um, have taken that as, I want to be careful what I say here, some have accused some of taking that as saying the woman should stay in the home. And <clears throat> we, anytime a woman feels unsafe, and I think it's, I think this is justified. You know, she tells me the threats she's hearing, the types of things that he's saying. We default towards separation. That's almost a default for us. I have a very pragmatic reason for that. As the, until last year, I was the pastor of counseling of a church of 5,000 people. And what that meant is I'm not only trying to protect counselees, I have to protect the organization. And I have liability issues that I always have to keep in mind of what would happen if I advise this woman to stay in the home and she gets hurt. Uh, did I just set the church up for liability issues? So I default towards safety. I'd rather be safe than sorry. And then let's gather our data. Let's, in light of the culture that we're living in, um, I have a lot I could say about 1 Peter 3, but in light of the culture that we're living in and how on edge people are about these issues, I mean, the whole, we're a Southern Baptist church, and for, if you've followed anything related to the abuse scandals in the Southern Baptist, you know that First Baptist Church is named in that. We're one of the oldest and most historic Southern Baptist churches, and we actually were named in that report because of past cases. So we're extra sensitive. Uh, Heath talks about, I'm just waiting for the helicopters to be circling over First Baptist. So we default toward precaution. Uh, we lean toward reporting. We lean toward pr uh, separation because we'd rather be safe than sorry. Now, I'll be honest with you and tell you that some um, in the biblical counseling world would say we're probably too sensitive. Um, but I'm comfortable with where we are <laughs> for both reasons, protecting women and the liability issues. I, I always have to be, I don't have to anymore. I'm not the pastor counseling anymore. So the younger guy who took over my place, he has to be thinking about that now, of balancing those issues. So the question was, could psychotropic medications be part of the counseling and practice? So there's a lot of things I could say there, but the first thing would be biblical counselors can't prescribe medicine. Most psychologists cannot prescribe medicine. You have to go to a medical doctor or a psychiatrist to get medicine uh, prescribed. Um, are we against medication? Absolutely not. Julie just talking about Julie, I didn't even bring this up here, but she chose, her doctor wanted her to be on an anti-anxiety. She chose not to be on an anti-anxiety medicine. Uh, that was not our counsel to her. Our training for our counselors is we don't talk about medicines. You, we tell people if they bring up questions about medicine, go to your doctor. I don't wanna be guilty of medical malpractice so I can't talk about medical 
issues. The one exception we make to that is have you checked the side effects of the psychotropic meds? Uh, psychotropic medication is not like ibuprofen. Uh, that even has side effects if you take too much of it. But <clears throat> psychotropic meds are not, uh, they're serious medicines. And so we train all of our counselors that we have a, a sheet called a PDI, personal data inventory. And it has on there, are you on medicines? What are they? And we train all of our counselors to look up the medicines so that they can be aware of the side effects that might be happening in the person's life. Um, so I know I'm giving you a long answer, but it would not, could medicines help somebody who's anxious? Sure, but that's not what I deal with. Is it gonna change their heart? Absolutely not. The medicines aren't gonna change their heart. It's gonna help them cope. Um, that's something for them to talk to their doctor about. Yeah. Um, so the question again for the recording, where was God when? Julie, I'll just make it the horrific circumstance, when she was raped by her husband, or when I saw my mom being beat up by my father when I was growing up. Where was God then? Well, we believe God's omnipresent. And there's a lot of passages. So where was God? He was right there. Then that raises the question, uh, theologians call this the question of theodicy. <clears throat> theodicy is how can a good God be involved with pain and suffering? So if God is good and loving and kind, why, how can he how can you say all things work together for good to those that love God? Do I have the complete answer for that? No. I've been thinking about the issue of theodicy for 43 years now as a pastor. Uh, the person who's thought through pain and suffering and where was God is John, and has a, the best answer I've seen so far is Johnny Erickson Tata. And her book called uh, When God Weeps, is if you deal with, if you're a counselor and you're dealing with sufferers, you really need to read When God Weeps by Johnny Erickson Tata. And that's what she's addressing, is where was God when she had her diving accident? Well, God was there. Otherwise, you don't have a sovereign God. But God uses pain and suffering to accomplish purposes. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And... The Lord has written a story with Johnny's life that is unbelievable of how she's dealt with pain and suffering. But she wrestled through that question. If you've ever seen her movie or read her books, uh, she wanted to kill herself. She was trying to kill herself, even though she was a quadriplegic. She would try to violently shake her head back and forth to snap her neck because she was trying to kill herself because she knew she was going to be a quadriplegic her whole life. And then a friend named Steve Estes came and they started wrestling through that question. And he had read a lot of the Puritans. Steve Estes is an expert on Puritan literature. And he started just helping her think through the sovereignty of God and pain and suffering. <coughs> and a book that came out of that later on is the book, When God Weeps. Yeah. That's not a totally satisfying answer. And that's because I don't think we... That there's so many mysteries with the with the, the issue of theodicy.
So examples, what are examples of homework assignments after a counseling session? I mentioned, so what do you do with intrusive thoughts? And <clears throat> I, I tried to give you some from Isaiah 26. And so we taught uh, Julie, her counselor taught her how to worship and sing hymns about the truths in Isaiah 26. That's a great homework assignment. Um, we, I have a homework assignment uh, called the Life of Trust homework assignment, where it's based on Jerry Bridges' definition of trust. And Jerry Bridges, in his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, he defines what it means to live a life of trust this way, that trust is not a passive state of mind, it is a vigorous act of the soul, whereby we choose to believe the promises of God despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. So I have people memorize that, and then I have them study Isaiah 26, 3 to 5, and see how the word trust is used in the passage. I have them study Psalm 26, uh, verses uh, 7 through 9, where it talks about living a life of trust, and David choosing to trust God, and then thinking about, okay, what am I going to do with this when I'm having a hard time sleeping? I'll give you an example in my own life. I was telling someone earlier, I, I pastored in Michigan for a while, over on the other side. <clears throat> so over on the side where if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I found out the hard way what that means. So. I pastored in the Grand Rapids area and went through a really bad church conflict. And I was having a hard time sleeping, uh, actually having some panic attacks and just really having a hard time sleeping. And so I started meditating on Isaiah 26, the steadfast of mine, you will keep him in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in Yahweh forever for in Yah, Yahweh himself, we have an everlasting rock. Well, it's not just enough for me to recite that verse to myself. I have to choose to believe it. That's what Jerry Bridges is saying, that you're choosing to believe the promises of God. So I'm laying in bed and I have to wrestle with, this is the type of homework I'm going to give people. I'm going to be teaching them, what do you need to do? You're going to have to wrestle with your soul, not just recite that Bible verse to yourself and hope that it calms you down. You're going to have to talk to yourself. And it sounds like the psalmist. I'm going to talk to myself. I'm going to ask myself questions and I'm going to answer myself. It's okay. So I'm going to talk to myself and tell myself, God's my rock. And then my soul says, no, he's not. And then I say back to my soul, yes, he is. I believe that he's my rock. And then that still wasn't helping me. So, and I'm, you know, I'm just laying in bed wide awake and on the verge of a panic attack. And I, I thought, okay, I need to be meditating on God as my rock. What does it mean, God's my rock? So I started thinking about God as stability in my life. But I wanted to tie in the New Testament as well. So I started thinking about the gospel, and I started thinking about the empty tomb. And that's a rock. So to tie this all together, I, I was meditating on these verses and I thought, okay, Lord, you're my rock. And that rock is an empty tomb. And so I have the power of the resurrection. Ephesians chapter 1 says, I have the power of the resurrection dwelling in me. Ephesians chapter 1. And as I was dwelling on God being my rock, 
and that I have the power of the resurrection and telling myself that it's true, guess what happened? I started to calm down. And I experienced exactly what these verses say. The steadfast of mind you can keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. So those are the, I, I don't, you know, people today are saying the Bible doesn't have enough resources to help people with serious problems and that we need psychology to do that. I think the problem is we're not thinking deeply enough about application of Scripture and how do you properly apply Scripture to difficult circumstances and do it in a creative way.